Uh, Lord, thank you for the beauty of the morning and beauty of these people. I ask, Lord, now that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to whatever you might want to share with us in the next few moments. Uh, Lord, do your work in me. I mean, I've done my best to prepare my heart and my mind for you to flow through. But Lord, it's also a work that needs to be done in the hearts of those who are here today. For each one, Lord, that's in the room. I know we all came with a friend or we came with family or whatever, but Lord, we, we believe out alive that every time this happens, you make an appointment with individuals in this room. And so, Lord, I pray that will happen today. And we'll all leave. And when we're having our lunch conversations, the conversation will be, you know, this is what God said to me today. This is what God showed me today. And Lord, the whole agenda is to bring you the greatest amount of glory possible. So have your way. Uh, feel free to move in your name. Amen. I want you to think about a moment in your life, um, in a, or maybe a place of your life, uh, that you, seem, you feel stuck in. So no matter what you do, it seems like that area kind of defeats you all the time, say. Maybe it's a habit, or maybe it's some kind of addiction, and no matter what you do, the addiction always gets you. And you go for like a month or so, but then you fall back into that. Or maybe it's a, a pattern of behavior. For some of us, it's a pattern of thinking, you know, whether it's low self-esteem or whether it's anxious thoughts or depressed kind of thoughts. But we get out of it, but then eventually it just sort of pulls us back in. Uh, for some of us, it's a struggle with doubt or maybe a struggle with cynicism about everything and everybody. Maybe it's an issue of health or food, or maybe for some it's an issue of drinking way too much. But, but what is the area that continues to make you feel defeated? And no matter what you do, that area always seems to win. And there's this sense of defeat in you because you, no matter what you try, you can't change it. Okay, everybody kind of playing along here? This is an all play. So everybody sort of identifies what that area might be. Now, to determine if you're thinking about the right area or the correct area of life that makes you feel stuck, here, here's a litmus test. In this particular area that hopefully you're thinking about now, in this particular area, you have tried to win. You have tried to overcome it. But the more you try to get away from it or get over it, the more it sinks its claws on you deeper and deeper and deeper. That's what I want to talk with you about today. So we've been in this series together, and we've been talking about uh, these two kings. Last week, we talked specifically about the two kings. If you have the church app, all the messages are on the church app, and the sermon notes for this message, and all the other notes, they're on the church app too, so you can download that. It's all there. But last week, we had this discussion about these two kings, Melchizedek and Jesus. And, And what we looked at in this book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a book in Scripture, and um, we've been studying this book. If you don't have any scripture, we have them available for you at the Connect desk. Just go out and say, hey, I need a Bible, and it's yours for free. So just take it. But if, in the scripture, there's this book of Hebrews, and here's what happens. This first king, Melchizedek, who's in the Old Testament, he kind of opens the door or paves the way for the real king that's Jesus that primarily shows up in the New Testament, even though he's throughout scripture. And Jesus being the real king was sort of kind of evident to us as we looked at Jesus and specifically how God chose Jesus to do what he did. Jesus didn't apply for the job and get it. God said, Jesus, this is what you're going to do. And then we looked at Jesus being fully human and fully God. There's a uniqueness to Jesus that, to be quite honest, is a clear faith builder for those of us who believe. But if you don't believe, if you don't believe in Jesus and, and you're here, there, there's enough, I think, uniqueness to this person of Jesus that it merits your attention. 
There's enough uniqueness to this character of Jesus in history, even if it's a historical character. There's enough uniqueness, enough different about him that, that you should consider what, why he was weird. Christians believe he was the son of God, but you should have an answer for why he was so weird. And after looking at all this uniqueness of Jesus, we kind of got excited last week because if what Jesus says is true, that means we have this level of of love and power that's available to us that, to be quite honest, most of us aren't even beginning to tap into in how we live out our lives, if what Jesus said is true. And that's why Paul used these words when Paul writes something like this. Paul says, I can do everything, everything through him who, who, who gives me strength. Now, before you think these words are based on circumstances, before you think Paul is sitting at some spa in a, with his feet in a foot bath, they're wearing a terry cloth robe and drinking some kind of drink with an umbrella, before you think that's what's happening right now, Paul's actually in prison, man, when he's doing this. I mean, the guy's locked up. He doesn't know if he's going to survive what's getting ready to take place. When Paul wrote these words, that's what his setting was. Not only that, Paul had been beaten for this kind of statement. Eventually, you can look this up for yourself, even if you don't believe. Historically, Paul will give his life because of the truth of that verse. So when Paul says that, it's not like it's easy to say when everything's wonderful and your whole life's a Hallmark movie. But that's not what's happening for Paul. His life is absolutely incredibly difficult. Paul is literally an enemy of the state, which for a skeptic, a gifted cynic like myself, I wrestle with this. I sometimes wrestle with the writings of Paul, and the reason is I look at it from the outside and I'm reading in, and there seems to be this disconnect between what Paul wrote and believed and his life. Does that make sense? Who writes something like that when they're sitting in prison? You want to say, I can do everything through him because no, you can't get out of jail. And we all know that God eventually did that too, by the way. But, then, but nonetheless, you think, man, Paul, there's some kind of disconnect. You aren't thinking straight. Something's messed up in your brain about who you are. And so I sometimes wrestle with this. I'll give you another example of this. These, again, are the words of Paul. He said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Now, let's just pause. Because this is starting to hint at Easter, although I'm not going to tell you what happens on Easter. But the first line is actually a pretty good hint. If that spirit that raised the dead man and gave him life. Let's just be clear. Call it what it is. If that same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, Tom, he who raised Christ from the dead is also going to give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This is a guy who has a tough life. It's a difficult life. And essentially, he dies as an enemy of of the state for those beliefs. So here's where I'm going, and I hope you've made the journey with me so far. I tend to believe all the things Paul wrote, and I have a confident understanding of why Paul wrote much of what he did. But the truth be told, I can struggle with believing I am more than a conqueror sometimes. It's hard for me to get up out of bed and look at myself in the mirror at 50 years of age and think, you are one fine conqueror. It was easy when I was 20 because I was. But now that I am 50, all the parts are moving. 
And so, and I won't go any further, but I could, okay? But I'm not because this is church. And so the parts are moving and the hair that once was here is on retreats. You know, all these things are sort of happening. And it's hard to look yourself in the mirror and think, man, I'm a conqueror. Plus, I tried it one time and Lisa was in bed and she said, no, you're not. And so, you know, that's, that's a difficult thing in our home. I'm a conqueror. In fact, it's very difficult, and to be honest with you, when we're in this place together, drinking free coffee and sitting on a padded chair, I feel like a conqueror with you people. I feel like I'm a conqueror, don't you? But man, I'm going to get out of here, and someone's going to cut me off. It may be one of you people, now that I think about it. I'm not going to have a conqueror spirit, but it's going to be a fighting spirit, I can promise you that. Isn't it true? Come on, isn't it true? It's hard to feel these kinds of things. It's hard to live in those kind of truths in our everyday life. And it's hard to believe with conviction as I'm sitting in a hospital room, funeral home, sitting on a couch and the whole world's falling apart for someone in my family. It's hard to believe with conviction that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to me and living in me. Is that fair? Answer me, is it fair? Allow me to summarize it this way. In my life, there often seems to be a disconnect between what I believe and what I experience. The year that I sensed God's call on me to start alive, 2004, and I was going to be part of the transformation of this great local church, and you all are all a blessing to me because you're part of that. So that year, uh, before we even knew alive was going to be on the table, before this even God had kind of given that whole vision, I, w- I went to India. And I went into India, and I was snuck into Nepal and snuck into Bhutan and traveled all over that part of the world for about two weeks. And uh, many of you heard the story before, but at the end of that trip, I end up, we were in an orphanage in West Bengal, and I end up falling ill, and I spent a couple of days in bed. Well, in bed and running back and forth to a certain room. But anyway, I was in bed. And the amount of experiences that pressed on my comfort zones in that whole, that whole trip were, were un, uncountable, innumerable for me. Uh, fear, anxiety, unknowns were constant companions. But as I laid in that bed, sick as a dog, I mean, it's hard to explain if you've never been there before, but basically, I had nothing there was no I'm a conqueror kind of feeling. You know what I'm saying? I was completely broken. To be honest, I was weep, weepy. Lisa wasn't even in the country. She was in another part. She was back here. And so I was kind of, I was just alone. And um, in those moments, uh, God revealed something to me, I think today, that, that even today continues to sort of play out in my life. Just, just being completely open with you right now. And here's what God showed me. God essentially said, you know, Tom, you spent most of your life Believing I can't or I won't take care of you. You spent most of your life believing I can't or I won't take care of you. Now, make no mistake, I was a follower of Jesus when this was revealed. And it was true. And I even go further to you see, say this, I'll bet there are a good many of you in this room Who can relate to this statement? You wrestle with believing that God can or God won't take care of you. You wrestle with that. God can or will take care of you. You would say you believe in Christianity. You may believe in the whole Jesus thing and the Easter thing, and you may believe in God. But you aren't sure God can or will take care of you. Which leads to a very simple question for me. 
why? Why do I believe that? Or why don't I believe that? Fair? Why do we think that way? What's happened? And to get at answering the one-word question of why, I want to offer you a one-word answer. But before I offer you the one-word answer, I want to get some grace from you. Here's, here's, here's where we're going. The word I'm going to use actually has some history here in America. And so that word has a whole different set of emotions in, in the context of America. But the word and the way I want to present it is actually from biblical history, not American history. And so if you will, trust me, stay with me, and I promise we'll get to a happy place. The reason why we tend to think this way, that we spend most of our lives believing God can't or God won't take care of us, the reason it all comes down to one simple word, and it's the reason, the word slavery. Something or someone else determines what I can and cannot do. Respectfully, allow me to suggest this to you. Each and every one of us in this room, everybody we passed on the way to church today, everybody in our families, our extended families, everybody in our neighborhoods, we all have traits of thinking like a slave. In fact, I'll go even further and say it's our default thinking. We naturally think that something or someone else determines what we can and cannot do. And because of this, when we rebel, rebellion is to believe nobody's going to tell us anything. Interestingly, the Bible says this truth that somehow people that think like slaves have actually been set free. This is a passage from the Old Testament that talks about and prophesies the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's speaking about Jesus. Watch. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now watch. To proclaim freedom for the captive and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now you guys know this. This is kind of how I think if you've been here for a while. When I read a verse like that, I figure there are just two deals on the table. I like black and white thinking whenever it's possible. I think there are two deals. Either this is true or it's not. You can't dip your toe in this as a maybe. It's either yes or it's no. Either Jesus released us from darkness and released us from prison and sets us free, or he doesn't. Let's just agree so we can move on. Now, if we believe this verse, if you believe it's true, and most of you may be wired like me, that, you know, I was in the Bible, it's got to be true. If you believe that verse to be true, then our challenge is to stop thinking like a slave. Stop thinking like something or someone else determines what we can and cannot do. Well, the scriptures teach another word to go along with this whole idea of being captive or being a slave. The scriptures teach another word, and it's used to describe what happens to people like us when we choose to, what we talked about last week, repent. That is, to turn from our way, the way we think about everything. To turn from all of that, our plan, our strategy, and turn toward God. The scriptures use another word, and here's the word the scriptures use. Redeem. Redeem means bought with a price. Now, a lot of times people think these words like originated in the Bible. They didn't. Sometimes the Bible would take two words from culture and smash them together to make a new thought. But for the most part, the words the scriptures use were pulled out of the day that scripture was written. You follow? 
And so when you look at this word, this is no different. This is a great example of that word being pulled out of culture. And I'll tell you where it comes from. The root of this word in Scripture is agora. Agora refers to an open marketplace or an open square. So this word's root, when you talked about redeemed, the people reading Scripture, in the middle of the agora, one of the central points of the agora, was a large stone. And on that stone, slaves were auctioned off. They were sold. So redeem means to buy out. Redeem means to buy out by paying the necessary price in order to purchase someone out of slavery and into freedom, never to be sold again. Are you with me? So Adam and Eve are hanging out in the Garden of Eden. God gives them everything they could ever need or even imagine. It was Master's Weekend every weekend in the Garden of Eden. Beautiful place. There's only one rule in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Now, the important here issue isn't what kind of tree it was. I think it was an okra tree. I know they grow as plants. Don't send me an email, but you have your world. I have mine, and this is my, my sermon. So I think it was an okra tree, and I don't like okra, and it was nasty. So this is what this kind of tree was. Write that down. So here it is, the okra tree, the tr- fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Now, important issue is that the tree symbolizes, the important issue is what the tree actually symbolizes for Adam and Eve. Because God has told Adam and Eve, this is amazing. This is good. God tells Adam and Eve, here's reality as I desire. You see this beautiful garden? You see these carnations? You see this absence of kudzu? All this is a result. All this is the result of what I desire. See, there's no fire ants here in the Garden of Eden. You know why? Because I don't like fire ants, God says. Even God. Those came from the other place. And so God says, I don't know. But God says, you can have all these things. You can have these beautiful flowers. And by the way, check out these animals. Check out these animals. He says, I want you to rule and have dominion over them to be meat eaters. That's what God said in the Garden of Eden. It's in there. It's in the Bible. Close. It's in the Bible. But you can rule and have dominion over all these animals. It's created, he says, for you to enjoy, God says. And not only that, but in the Garden of Eden, you and I are going to hang out. We are going to walk together in the cool of the garden. We're going to sit on the front porch in the swing and drink lemonade and tell stories well into the night in the Garden of Eden. That's what God wanted. And God said, this is all good. But that doggone tree was in the garden. The okra tree I mentioned to you, that was in the garden. And you know, God didn't create robots. I'm going to prove it to you. Would you raise your hand? All right, good. Put your hands down. Some of you did, some of you didn't. You know why? You have a will. And some of you are just plain stubborn. But you have a will. I didn't come here to exercise, preacher, you know, but I understand, I understand. But you have a will, and all of us do. All of us do. We choose what we do and don't want to do. We get that. Well, God created people with a will. And you know why? Because love that is chosen is more powerful than love that is forced. And so when God made me and God made you, he didn't pre-program me and wire me up to absolutely love him. No, he didn't. He actually programmed me with a choice, a will. The tree in that garden was a symbol of abandoning what God says is good and what God says is evil. And starting to listen or pay attention to what the tree said was good and evil. The tree 
was Adam and Eve committing to another source besides God to inform them of what is good and what is evil. By the way, for those of you that are especially astute and like to study culture, you can see this playing out in culture all the time right now. Everybody is trying to tell you what is good and what is evil. Fair? Even our parents would marvel at what our current culture says is good and evil. So we're all sort of signs of following the tree. And that decision led to death because the gift of God had now been violated by creation's will, by our choice. We chose to turn our back on the love of a father. And apparently when we did that, there's a cost to sin. Scriptures say that the cost of sin is death, which is really scary to think about. The moment Adam and Eve made this choice, something had to happen because I all of a sudden became beheld in bondage to sin and to death. I got it. You got it. The tree was a symbol of abandoning what God said was good. And the moment Adam and Eve made that choice, everything changed. And slave thinking became part of us. Every one of us. The hymn writers described it this way. We are now bent towards sinning. Some of you may have been raised with this one. We are now prone to wander. And you are actually proof of slave thinking, to be honest. You all are. I am too. You know how I can prove it to you? Have you ever noticed there are no classes on how to sin? I looked it up. I tried to find one. No kidding. You go to the bookstore and look in the self-help section or go on Amazon, Kindle, or whatever you do, and just type in, how can I be a better sinner? You won't find a book. There's not a book there. You can't get a degree on how to be a better sinner. Yeah, I've got a master's in sin. You know, you can't. Some of you tried, but you can't. You actually can't get that degree. You know why? Because nobody had to teach us that. If you have children, you know this. Because at one point, cute little babies that all you do is kind of powder and lotion them, and all of a sudden they turn around and they got, you know, pea soup spits out in their fang show, and they say, wow, you're just like your father, you know? <laughs> so when that happens, why? Well, your kids naturally get that. Fair? Not your kids, but people you know, right? We're all naturally prone to this. We all do this naturally. We're all prone to sin. Why? It's not because you're a bad person. It's because of what happened in the garden, and it's because of sin. So now the question that I have is, so what is sin? We're all raised in these different denominations, and everybody kind of taught us what sin is, and then we fought each other over what sin is in that definition. But uh, the Scriptures actually have some pretty good definitions of sin. There's about 12 of them in there. But here's just kind of one to get the discussion started. What's the result of choosing another knowledge of good and evil? Here's one from 1 John. If you don't like it, go find another one. That's fine. But for all that is in the world, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride and riches, all those things, they don't come from the Father walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but they actually come from the world. And you probably agree with that statement because these things consume 
most of our lives. I would say we probably could make a pretty good case that most of the sin that I struggle with in my life and you struggle can go back to one of these three things. This is basically this. I wanted it, I saw it, and I had to prove something. Fair? I wanted it, the desire of the flesh. Anybody ever get into trouble following that one? Don't raise your hand. Right? My flesh wanted it. Me man, me hungry, feed me, you know, whatever that is. However you said that, that's kind of what that is. How about this? Anybody see things with their eyes and end up pursuing what they were seeing with their eyes that ended up getting them in trouble? Isn't it true? I want that, no matter what it takes to get that. If I got to sell my family to get that, I want that. I want him. So no matter what I have to do, even if I have to compromise my own values to get him, I'm going to do it. We've all been there. I want her, so no matter what it takes. And then what about pride? Anybody else can relate to moments of pride in their lives where they did something stupid or did something sinful and ended up hurting people? Well, that's just kind of a great thing to sort of say, you know what, that might be a good start for sin. None of these things, according to what John says, are from God. They're all from the other tree. And these are the things that we're slaves to. We're all held captive by. And then our excuses come, right? When I started, as a matter of fact, and I said, hey, think of that one thing. Your excuse started coming too. You said, you know what, Tom, I've tried to quit, so get off my back. I've tried to stop, but I can't stop. I've gone for a month with it, and it's been good, but then I'm going to fall back into it. Leave me alone. I've tried everything, but I can't do it. I've read the scripture, can't do it. I can't, can't get over this. And you know what? You're 100% correct. You can't. I can't either. We're kind of stuck in this, aren't we? We're slaves to this. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a what? Sin. Well, it's kind of depressing, but that's sort of where it is. So let's stand for closing prayer. curtain is actually a symbol of this reality. We live apart from God naturally. Our default thinking is with the other tree, not God. And we all, many of us, tried to pay God off by being good. Some of us are doing that now. Hey, God, I'm at church. <laughs> Put one in the good column. We try to pay them off for being good. We try to pay them off by acting a certain way, at least on Sunday, and then like tried to stay as close to Sunday as we could until Tuesday morning, and then we were toast. The problem is God doesn't accept any of that kind of currency. He's not worried about how clean you can make your nose. <laughs> He's not worried about how good you think you can live. The only currency God accepts is Jesus. And now you're ready to hear the truth. Only now are you ready to read the truth in the book of Hebrews. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. I'm going to come right back to that. That is to say, not a part of this creation. Jesus didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
Now, let me just pause here long enough to pull everybody along with us. What the scripture is saying right now is Jesus didn't use imperfect ways to connect to God. He didn't use a building like a tabernacle or a temple that sort of instructed him how to relate to a God who hung out behind the curtain that you couldn't approach. He didn't use a sacrificial system where we had to fire up bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons and all that stuff. And that had to be repeated over and over and over again every time you came to church. He didn't use that. No, Jesus used the cross, and he offered a one-time sacrifice for all people. And on that cross, apparently sin was defeated by the King of kings and Lord of lords once for all. And guess what the difference was? Watch. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, Read it with me. By his own blood. Do you see it? For the first time ever in human history, the blood of God was spilt for his children. Having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, Sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then? So what he's just said is, you know, we used to use this sacrificial system, and it kind of took care of things that were made us outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished, unblemished lamb to God. Watch this. I'm so excited. Cleanse our, what's that word? Doesn't that blow your brain? How much more will this blood cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, from the things we did that were bonehead plays, so that we may serve the living God? Friends, what this means, you should know this, what this means is we are, we're free. This means the price has been paid for our sin, and we are no longer slaves because apparently we have been bought with some price and it wasn't like a half-off sale that he bought me he bought me with the precious blood of jesus and that apparently has redeemed me and restored us and that sacrifice because it was the blood of god was plenty for our sin and it was more than enough to cover every one of your sins even your hall of fame sins and that's exactly what the writer says next for this reason jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, dum da dum dum, or whatever word you're supposed to use there to say this is exciting what follows. That those of us who are called may receive the promise eternal, what's this? Slaves don't get inheritances. Fair? Slaves don't get those. So whatever this new covenant thing is, it's all changed. Inheritance now that Jesus has died as a, what's the word? Ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We have an inheritance, friends, and it's not just, it's not just out of hell. But Jesus changed our status with God. And because of what Jesus did on our behalf, now there's another deal on the table for anybody who believes. And here's the deal. We are no longer slaves, but heirs. Only heirs receive inheritances. Sons and daughters of God.
So the whole idea, the default stinking thinking that's part of all of us now, now has a new cry. You know the cry of a slave. Something or someone else is going to tell me what I am and what I can do. But we have a new covenant, a new relationship with God, and therefore we have a new cry. And I've actually written it for you, and I want to I do something here with you. I would like to do audience participation. Don't you love this? Because you're sitting there wondering, what if I do it and the person beside me doesn't? Then you punch them. But I want us to say this representing the truth that it is. Because what I want us to do is I want to say it to retrain the brain. I want you to see the new covenant that is now ours. So you say it with me. Are you with me? You say it with me like we cheered for Clemson yesterday, even though they were both Clemson. Okay, you say it with me. Here's, here we go. So we're going to say it out loud. You ready? I was a slave. Okay, you all are terrible at this. You don't even believe what I'm saying right now. You don't even believe. So come on. The 830 did this so much better. Okay, so I was a slave. Jesus paid the price for my sin with his blood. He bought me out of death. Sin is not. You say it like you mean it. Sin is not my master. What's that mean? I am free. I am free. I am free. Isn't that amazing? Give yourself some love. You should. Now listen, some of you have walked with Jesus for a great while, but you are still in prison because you're living on some old nasty covenant and you're looking at the wrong tree. And I would suggest you have the opportunity to be free. You still think like a slave, but you don't have to any longer. This is what Paul had on us. He didn't think like a slave anymore. He understood that there was something and someone else who was much bigger than the things that were binding him up. And this is because slave thinking is all we know, but Paul says, it's no longer my default. The beauty of what Jesus did on the cross is something that I can choose. Just like I chose that tree, I can choose to turn my back and walk away from the tree and back into the arms of God. And we can choose what our life is going to be about. We really can. And there must come a point where all of us choose because God said, Jesus said, Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And we can choose to be part of God's kingdom come. This is an option on the table for everybody in this room. But let me give you the option that you're more familiar with as well. And we're going to do the same thing. Let's read it out loud. I am free. I am, I am a sin. Did you feel it? Did you sense it? Which one sounds better to you? Some of you, this is exactly how you think, and you know it as you sit in this room. You think like a slave. I would suggest you have another option on the table. So I'm reading and writing and studying this all this week, trying to put it from my mind into my heart. And I had this image, not like a creepy, like God spoke to me kind of image, but just an image. 
And I pictured myself standing on that, in the Agora, and on that block. You familiar? And then I pictured all these faces out here that were trying to buy me. And I had names on some of those faces just like you would. And they're bidding for me. I want Tom, not because I value Tom, I want him to work for me. I want Tom. I, I just want him to do evil for me. I want to own Tom. And they're all bidding. My bids were low. I'll give you a quarter. And some of those faces are behaviors. Some of those faces are attitudes, insecurities. Some of those faces are from the past. And they're bidding. I'll bid. I'll take them. I want them. I want them. There wasn't anything pretty that was bidding on me. And then in my mind's eye, I had this moment (laughs) where all those who were bidding began to part. And Jesus began to walk through them. And he was dressed in white because Jesus is the only dude who can pull off white. And he comes through the crowd. And everybody hushes because everybody knows he is the man. And Jesus says, I've paid the ransom for Tom. He's mine. Get your hands off him. And he set me free. He set me free. He set me free. And he can do the same for you. You should decide. You should decide about this. So let's bow our heads. Here's what we're going to do. Everybody bow your head. Hey, listen, if you're in church world, not in church world, this is all freaky. Here's what's going to happen. We're bowing our heads. Why are we bowing our heads? Well, I just like to give people an opportunity to think in and of themselves. No distractions, not paying attention to who we came with or what's coming next. But just for the next moment, you kind of have a conversation with yourself. Now, there's a couple of things in the room I think we have to address, friends. One is some of you have been Christians for a long time, but you just haven't believed this. You're still thinking like a slave. You know what? I wonder if Jesus doesn't want to kind of give you that same mental image today. And he wants to kind of walk through all those people you see vying and trying to bid on you. And you need to see Jesus step through that crowd and say, hey, that one's mine. I bought him with a price, a ransom you can't touch. Get your hands off him. He's mine. Some of you need to have that. You need to live in your freedom that Christ bought you, not because you're great. It's not that. It's that we turn from the, from the tree. We turn from the tree and back to God. Others of you in the room, you know what? You, you think like a slave all the time, and you don't even want to hear me say that. But you do, because when you read that list, you thought, wow, that's true of me. That's true of me. Something's mastering me, and I don't even like it. And now I'm piling up all the hurt and regret in my life, and those things also are trying to master me, and I don't like that either. I know that because I've been there. I've done that too. I think you should probably consider the invitation to be free. It's between you and God. But if there's something in your heart that says, oh, if this is true, 
if you can see yourself on that auction block and you say, man, if this is true, I got to have it. Well, Jesus has made an appointment with you today, man. He wants you. He wants you to know I bought you with a price, dude. And so this is how this goes. You turn from the tree, not the tree that they bought into. But you say, Lord, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of looking something else for what's good and evil and the meaning of life. I want to turn. It's called repent. I want to turn back to you. And you just tell God that. That's all it is. It's just like a conversation. You tell him in your heart, tell him with your words, whatever you want. You just say, Lord, I want to turn back to you. And God opens his arms and turns and just accepts because he's already spilt the blood for you. Now, let me be honest. If that's you, you're going to have some days, some weeks, some months, and ups and downs. You will. All of us did. But we stay the same direction. You're turning away from the tree and back to God. Grab yourself a Bible. Get involved in a small group. Tell somebody you love and trust, hey, I'm turning from the tree. And begin the journey with the rest of us. All kinds of stuff out there for you to feed yourself on that journey. Lord, the only way I can be on this platform right now is because you bought me. I'd have nothing to say if it weren't for that. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would now move around the room and remind hearts and lives that they have been purchased. But you won't force yourself on anybody. They have to choose. And I pray you would bring freedom back to back front, corner to corner, side to side. You would bring freedom around across the body of a life so we can walk out of here indeed. I am free. I am free. I am free. In your name, amen.